right, we are here with disgruntled spies, but we're starting with Alan, who's got Ukraine cyber attacks. Yes, we keep coming back to this about how th this war, um, this invasion by Russia into Ukraine was supposed to feature a lot of cyber attacks, both on Ukraine and possibly on NATO nations. And that hasn't happened, or at least we don't seem to know about this, but a story published in the FT, Financial Times, um, uh, written by Mehul Srivastava, um, states that in fact, there have been a number of cyber attacks by uh, Russian forces against Ukrainian infrastructure, and that Ukraine has been largely very successful in repulsing those attacks. And this story details a number of incidents in which uh, Russians or Russian assets have attempted to damage Ukrainian cyber infrastructure. Uh, a couple of notable events, the uh, satellites that uh, I talked about, uh, I think it was about a week ago now, um, that was successful, of course, and that ended up damaging not just the Viasat um, elements in Ukraine, but also throughout Western Europe too. Another incident was the, um, the Russian use of an insider uh, that they had recruited to try to install some malware into a network. Not a lot of details given, obviously, but um, apparently Ukrainian, the, the Ukrainians identified this person and were able to stop it um, and presumably arrest the person, this insider who was attempting to, uh, to infect Ukrainian networks. Mm -hmm. There's also mention of a, quote, large Ukrainian security organization with more than 5,000 employees and 1,000 servers that uh, presumably was infected with some kind of wiper or ransomware, um, but a U.S. partner identified the attack and alerted them, and they were able to stop the attack before any significant damage was done. That sounds like the one Microsoft found. Yeah, quite possibly, yes, yes. But um, although this story is full of interesting suggestions and innuendos, there isn't a lot of attribution here. There aren't a lot of specifics. So I guess we'll just have to go and take them at their word. FT, of course, is a very large and reputable um, media company. So I'm assuming that we can, we can take them at their word. Yeah. Well, it's interesting to hear and it makes more sense. I knew about the big satellite one. Yeah. Yeah. And it seemed like, you know, if, if Russia has the capacity capability to take those satellites offline, then they should be able to attack, say, the power grid or very high value targets. And we just haven't heard about that. I'm sure there have <clears throat> been some successes that we have not heard about, but um, we haven't seen outages. You know, but the power grid's still up, at least in those places where it's not physically damaged. Yeah. Um, and also internet access is still up in many, many heavily uh, contested areas, and bombarded cities. Well, it some of that, out. I guess, is due to Starlink. Uh, well, Starlink is part of that, yes, but also um, land-based infrastructure is still up in yeah. places. It's degraded. But even the cities that are being bombarded, like Kharkiv, still have land internet. 
land-based internet. Yeah, well, this whole uh, invasion seems to be basically performed by cavemen just throwing rocks at things. Yeah, it's um, uh, seems without plan, with brutal, and 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 without logic. Yeah, yeah. Well, there is a logic to it, but it's a it's a particularly brutal logic. Well, I mean, the, there's no without any sense of tactics no. or really strategy. No one knows what the goal is, and they don't seem to be trying to accomplish anything with any efficiency. They just seem to be trying to batter the entire country to rubble. Yeah. Well, that's the only way that uh, Russia can accomplish its strategic goals at this point. I don't think anybody has any clue what their strategic goals are. Well, initially, it was to topple the Zelensky government within a couple of days and then be welcomed as victors and simply start the uh, well, yes, and administration of the whole country. Well, it's it's very comparable to our invasion of Iraq, where the Bush administration was actually stupid enough to believe we'd be welcomed with open arms the same way. And again, we were invading based on absolute nonsense. So I think morally and uh, and strategically, they're both quite comparable. Anyway, all right. So anyway, we've got um, the FBI. I did not know you could do this, but you can purchase ads and you can geolocate them down to like a one square mile and sometimes down to like one zip code, which can be even smaller. So uh, the FBI has been purchasing ads on like the Washington Post or on, on, I'm not on Facebook, if, on Twitter and Google, and they're geolocating them to be right near the Russian embassies. And they put ads in Russian uh, offering spies, you know, have you had enough of this nonsense? How about you like leak information to the FBI? So these only appear when you're standing on the street right in front of the embassy and you walk away and they go away. So that's pretty cool. And of course, the point is, even if nobody falls for it, it will create paranoia and dissension in the spy ranks as they begin trying to investigate to see if somebody actually did leak it. And I heard uh, Andrew Yang suggest last night, somebody told him, and somebody in the government asked him to please publicize this. They said, you know, if we $20,000 is a whole year's wage in Russia and they don't pay their soldiers hardly anything. So if we just offered their soldiers $20,000 to defect, we could probably get 50,000 soldiers to defect, which would be like half their army. And it would only cost a billion dollars and we could easily raise that. So he's pushing that idea. And I also saw the ad that uh, the Ukrainians put up last week, which said, we will give you $500,000 if any Russian Air Force pilots defect to us with your plane. Uh, and I haven't heard of anybody doing it yet, but all of this sounds like a really good idea, capitalizing on the fact that the Russians have really poor morale. They don't want to be there. They've been forced their conscripts, dragged from the ethnically you know, discriminated part of Russia forced to be in this army. They have no idea why they're doing this. They don't even want to do this. They have no hope of a good life back home. Probably it would be great to defect and get, and get some cash and be in some society that won't treat you like dirt. Anyway, um, so we'll see if any of these actually lead to results. And let's go on to Urban, the Scott ICMP. Yeah, I found this uh, fun little toy where mm -hmm. if you are trying to get data out, you can use the uh, the ICMP protocol. You have to set up the server up first, of course, but using this little Python script, 
you can get data out. Well, but the ICMP is blocked by many networks these days, by Windows anyway. It's blocked going in, not going out. I suppose, yeah, but you'd have to turn off. Maybe you're right. Okay. Also, I mean, this is really old. People used to use this with a product called Loki 20 years ago to get free internet service from hotspots. This looks like a new version of it. Yeah. I mean, this is this tool itself is only two months old. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's cool, I guess. But well, what's the, why right. would yeah, you yeah. ICMP just to bypass fire uh, yes. detection and such? Yes. Yeah, so it sounds like it would be used for uh, malware command and control or something. Yep. Yep, okay. yep, yep. Well, that makes sense. All right. And Alan has got Israel. Well, Israel and the NSO group, um, NSO, of course, is the very, very powerful, the, the manufacturers or creators of the very, very powerful Pegasus um, surveillance spyware system or suite of tools. And Pegasus has a rather checkered uh, history, shall we say. It's you could say used- that. Yes, it's been used by a number of repressive governments around the world to spy on dissidents against opposition, political parties and figures, even used in Uganda to spy on American diplomats, which is technically explicitly against the terms of the license. But I guess the NSO group is cool with that. Well, they, they have public statements just lying and claiming it's not happening or something. <laughs> That's right, even though there's ample evidence to the contrary. Yeah. But what they refuse to do is sell to the Ukrainian government. Really? Which has repeatedly requested um, to purchase it so that they can presumably use it to spy on Russian assets. You know, this is not the first time I've heard Israel is siding with Putin in this war, which is sort of mind-boggling. Well, this is where things get interesting. Not only has the NSO group refused to sell to Ukraine, but it has uh, hobbled its uh, license to Estonia. So the Estonians were Hmm. able to purchase it, but they were not able to use it against Russian phone numbers. So what, what, what is the relationship between Israel and Putin? Well, here's the thing is that NSO group is although an independent company, it is very much in the defense industry. Right. And so it does have close ties to the Israeli government. Now exactly what uh, form those ties are, uh, we don't know, but clearly the uh, Israeli government does want the NSO group to align with Israeli uh, foreign policy objectives. And right now, Israel's foreign policy objectives must always keep the civil war in Syria in mind. The civil war in Syria features a number of different groups, dozens and dozens of different groups, each with their own set of allegiances, many of which are aligned with Iran or Hamas. And uh, Israel is very much um, in conflict with both is, uh, Hamas and Syria. Wow. And apparently what's going on in Syria is that Russian forces have given Israeli forces kind of the green light to go in 
and bomb targets that um, Israel wants to. These are targets somehow associated with Iran or Hamas or other enemies of these. The Russian state. Russia is on the other side from Iran. Well, Russia and Iran do have a, a, a relationship, yes. But apparently in the Syrian theater, they, there's some kind of understanding, maybe not a formal agreement, but an understanding between Israel and Russia that uh, Russia will allow Israel to do certain things and may even be passing along intelligence to Israeli forces. And then the Israeli forces are able to act on that. If so in return, Russia did for Russia helping, okay. Yeah, if Russia did not cooperate, right. that would be a big problem for Israel because Russia does have a very large presence, military presence in Syria. Uh, they are flying regularly. I think they control the skies pretty much. So uh, Israel, if Israel wants to be able to strike targets in Syria, they need to play nice with Russia. Right, okay, so in order to maintain their advantage in Syria, they're willing to sacrifice Ukraine. Yes. Well, that's somewhat rational. It's certainly putting them on the wrong side of the majority of the world right now, though. Yes, it really is. Now, having said all that, um, there have been a number of flights from Tel Aviv to um, Eastern European countries over the past couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, these flights are probably carrying cargo of some kind. So it could just be the, uh, the uh, Israeli companies shipping goods to Poland and Slovakia. But it could be something else too. So this is just purely speculation on my part here, but there have been a number yeah. of flights going from Israel to Eastern Europe, to NATO partners in Eastern Europe. And what those flights are carrying is unknown, but it might be something of assistance to Ukraine. Yeah, well, this helps me understand. Like I remember about two, a week or two ago, Israel was gonna mediate this conflict. So they went and talked to the Russians and then they went to the um, Ukrainians and said, okay, here's what we propose. How about you surrender and give, give Russia everything they want now? Yeah. And then when the Ukrainians said no, they said, gee, why did you say no? That seemed good to us. Yeah, I think as far as Israel's foreign policy objectives are concerned, this situation is very uncomfortable, very uncomfortable, because yeah. certainly uh, in Israel, the public opinion is very much in favor of Ukraine and very much against Russia. Well, I assumed that Israel would support Ukraine because of their Jewish president, but apparently that's a trivial consideration. Well, it's much more complicated than that, of course. Yes. Yeah. All right. Well, that helps. All right. And this one I thought was amazing. I would have assumed it was some kind of stupid joke, except it comes from uh, Vincent Taviso, who is really famous for doing awesome security work. He's porting Windows Dynamic Link libraries to Linux. So you can test them with fuzzers on Linux. And this Seems crazy to me. Why in the world would you want to do that? But he says the fuzzing tools work much better on Linux than they do on Windows. So he actually wants to test Windows software on Windows ported to Linux. And he's serious about this. So um, it's, uh, and he's actually demonstrated fuzzing Windows Defender on Linux. 
So uh, I'm, I'm confused about why you would want to do this and whether it would work and whether the results would be reliable and so on, but he's really important. So I imagine it's all true. Um, and uh, anyway, I thought that was an exciting, I certainly would learn a lot about the Linux API and the Windows API doing this. Has he found anything good so far? Uh, I hadn't announced any results finding anything on Windows Defender yet, but um, just making it run at all is sort of heroic. This is sort of like people who make Doom run on a, on a COVID test. True, true. It is impressive. Yeah, it, but uh, anyway, um, that strange project exists, and it'd probably be fun to get involved for people who are really deeply into the API. Anyway, and then Irvin has got Windows 11. Yes, if you choose to run uh, Windows 11 on hardware that Microsoft doesn't want you to run it on, you're going to get a watermark. Well, they used it. to just not let you do it at all. So I guess this is a step up. It's a step up. It's an annoyance. It's showing up on the preview builds now. So it's definitely on its way to showing up on everybody's machines who that doesn't match what they want. Well, this reminds me of Windows Genuine Advantage. Yes. Yes, it's exactly that. So, you know, somebody's going to find some workaround in like the registry or something to disable it. You would think so, but of course, I suppose the point is, this has kind of been Windows' problem from the beginning. Is since they weren't a hardware company, they would make the stuff, and then people would install it on junky hardware, and then Microsoft get blamed for that. So it mm -hmm. sounds like they're trying to stop being blamed for the fault of your hardware. Yeah. Anyway, all right. But that's just business as usual. Yeah, yeah, well, and Alan's got fertilizer. Yeah, this is an interesting story from the American Prospect about fertilizer, which may not seem like a very interesting topic or certainly relevant to what we talk about here. Well, you know, I've heard that this is going to be a huge shortage. I heard fertilizer yes. comes from Russia and we're yes. going to have a shortage, which is... And this has everything to do with food security. And yeah. this is going to impact millions and millions of people around the world because uh, so many people are already... Uh, living in places that are highly food insecure and they are barely getting enough to eat as it is. And they live in countries that are really dependent on importing food in high volumes from other countries. Um, now this is a, an issue directly related to the war, the invasion of Ukraine by Russia because Russia and Ukraine are huge producers of wheat it's some of the most productive land in the world for wheat production. And now that there's this war, Ukraine at least is not going to be able to export much if any wheat. And Russia is cut off from international trade. So Russia may not be able to export much wheat either. So that's bad enough. And there was already a shortage of wheat um, in some countries prior to the invasion and they were already facing a big increase in wheat costs. But now, th thanks to the war, the situation's gotten even worse because of the fertilizer. Fertilizer, which is produced in Russia and is exported around the world, including to the US. And what this means is that 
although there are many countries around the world that are capable of producing high, large amounts of wheat like Canada and the US, farmers in those countries may not end up growing any more wheat despite the huge shortage and the much increased prices because the fertilizer costs have also gone up, if not even more, which makes it uh, cost prohibitive for American farmers to grow wheat. This is an amazing graph they've got. Fertilizer prices now five times what it used to be. Yes, which is absolutely bonkers. And the market fundamentals don't necessarily support this increase in price, which is one of the more alarming aspects of this whole situation is that, yes, Russia is a huge producer and exporter of fertilizer, um, but that doesn't explain all the price increase. There are actually three different components to fertilizer, nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus. And um, the production of each is different. But what it comes down to is that the US should be able to pick up some of the slack internally. Um, in particular, you can use oil to produce some components of fertilizer. Um, and uh, nitrogen in particular, uh, you can use oil and the US has a lot of oil. So it should be able to, to increase production, drive the price down a lot and then uh, stabilize it. That's not happening. And according to this article in the American Prospect, a lot of that has to do with the nature of the market itself, namely that there's high concentration of the market in just a few different players' hands. So there are just a few companies that are producing fertilizer in quantity in the US or even around the world, and they are responsible for driving up the costs significantly. Hmm. Um, one of the, the firms involved in nitrogen production just happens to be Coke Industries which is owned by the Koch brothers who are well-known in liberal, liberal democratic circles and Republican circles for their political activism, uh, their donations, very generous donations to uh, Republican politicians and also advocacy for various libertarian themed causes. So um, you might say that uh, their participation is no surprise in this case. Yeah. But it's not just the, the Koch brothers. There are other companies too, including one called Mosaic, which controls, which is essentially has a monopoly on the market in the US. And rather than the US government taking steps to import more fertilizer to stabilize prices, um, actually the US government has slapped a tariff on certain fertilizer imports, which has caused the prices to go up even more um, and so, so on and so forth. It's only exacerbating the problem with, uh, with these high fertilizer prices that will not go away. They are probably not going to uh, significantly diminish in time for planting season. So mm -hmm. we're looking at uh, um, high fertilizer prices for the foreseeable future, which then translates to high wheat prices, which then translates to millions of people not getting enough food. And as a final thought here, 
uh, food prices are high. They're very high. They are higher than food prices were in 2011 in many countries in the Middle East and North Africa. And what happened in 2011, of course, was the Arab Spring, which was driven in part at least by public discontent about high food prices. So there are always unpredictable consequences in situations like this. And there's no way of knowing what will happen, but uh, it's not good. Yeah, I'm, Biden said yesterday there's going to be a huge food shortage, and I was sort of surprised to hear that. But this yeah. is more information about why that happens. Yeah, yeah. And so, yes, some of it's market forces, but some of it's government policy, and some of it is just corporate uh, near monopolies or oligopolies and um, their pricing decisions and their behavior. Yeah, they're just exploiting the situation. They are indeed. Yeah. Well, uh, I was surprised by this one. Azure is being, Azure developers are being targeted by poison NPM libraries. So apparently people are developing Azure code in Node, which surprises me. And they're using public NPM repositories. And what you're supposed to do when developing for Azure is use the name of a library followed by at Azure to indicate it's, it's uh, somehow intended for Azure or the official Azure package. So somebody uploaded 200 packages with the names missing the at Azure. Obviously, are targeting developers who forget to put the at Azure in the name of their package. So this means that Azure developers are just using online libraries to uh, repositories that are not verified in any way. And it's just more of this extremely unsanitary supply chain usage, which I thought was going out of vogue, but apparently not. And especially if these are official Microsoft Azure developers, I think they might just be third-party people using Azure. But it does seem to me like this is, uh, I'm surprised that Microsoft does this to adopt an open source public repository that any idiot can put stuff in instead of having some kind of private repository for official Microsoft stuff. So I'd like to know more about exactly how this works out, but this is a lot of why Microsoft opposed open source for a long time and preferred to have private things. Like when you do a Windows update, you're not just downloading from some random repository, you're downloading from an official Microsoft source. So they know you're getting good stuff. And it would seem like it would be logical for them to have some kind of official source of code for micro, for developers. But uh, anyway, uh, there was this particular attack on the supply chain was detected and blocked, but that probably means there's a bunch of others that have not been detected and blocked. Anyway, and the last one is Urban. It's got Objective-C. Yeah, Objective-C is a awesome a site with a bunch of useful tools and, and info for all things Mac. Uh, like Oversight lets you know whenever your audio or video is being used. And, and I know that uh, Mac, the new version of Mac OS does have a little thing on the side, but it, it comes up uh, regardless. So if there's another application that's listening that you didn't expect to listen, it tells you. Uh, it has the... Uh, tells you when an application is trying to connect and you can either approve or deny um has a bunch of tools uh for like ransomware uh but what it also has even a, a malware section so if you want to play with some 
Mac malware you can. Yeah, now Alan told me he tried this stuff and it wasn't much good. Isn't that right, Alan? I don't want to knock all of the Objective-C tools. Some of them are indeed very, very useful. Others I've found to be uh, a little buggy. I've had them crash on me, that kind of thing, which you know is to be expected for uh, I've used... solo developed. I think it's solo developed tools, yeah. but they are cool. I'm not, I'm not knocking them. I'm just saying yeah. that they, they do have some limitations. They're not free either, right? No, they're free. Oh, they're free. Well, that's good. Yeah. Maybe I'll try some of them. Yeah, uh, I, I have BlockBlock, Block, Lulu, and Oversight, and they haven't crashed on me at all. Okay. Well, I remember I, I went to um, a Cloudflare conference, and at the conference, they said, we've got a free Mac anti-malware tool, so I put it on, and it killed my Mac dead. So uh -huh. I'm a little I'm a little less uh, no. hasty to test out. <laughs> I, I haven't had any problems with those three tools that I mentioned. Yeah, okay. Well, that's good. And uh, okay, well, I'm glad to hear about it then. All right. Well, that's it for this one. It being Friday, we'll be back on Tuesday.